Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, if you would. We have plumbed the uh, amazing depths of this great epistle called Romans. It is uh, incredi an incredibly amazing epistle, deep. Uh, I believe Peter was referring to Paul in this very letter, even in 2 Peter 3, when he said, there are things that he has written that are very deep and very difficult to understand. And I believe he had Romans in mind. So we're going to come to chapter 12. And let's not forget that we just were in chapter 11. And the very last four verses here, 33 to 36 of 11, took us all the way to the top took us to the heights of the mountains, the spiritual Himalayas, if you will. Second here, I'm going to... Something, I'm hearing some strange... Let's go do that there. And now we are going to, as we come, I suppose you could say come back down, kind of like Moses off that top of that mountain. We're going to come to a place which is crucial, critical in our lives. In fact, I was thinking of this, uh, meditating just before coming up here, where it says, oh, the depths of the, of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, there in, in Romans 11:33, and he's focusing our attention way up there at the riches of God, and he says, from him, in verse 36, and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever and ever, and you have this pay on as we talk about a praise of worship and he's just lost there and he's loving it there and it's all worship and it's all heart and look you'd like to stay there wouldn't you but you got real life and so he recognizes that and realizes that and so we come to chapter 12 and beginning in verse 1 he's now going to focus on real life He's now going to say, look, everything that was all that that I taught, I want to put feet to it. I want to put hands to it. I want to give eyeballs to it so that you can know what it is like practically to live out that statement from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. See, That's where we're at. And if you could say it this way, he just finished setting up how to become worshipers. Okay? Wrote John 4, the, the Father seeks worshipers. Now, he's going to say, here's how you live a life of worship. This is what it looks like. This is what worship looks like when it has feet. When it has hands. I mean, that's the life we want to live, right? A life of worship. And in fact, if you look at the whole Levitical system in the Old Testament, all of that stuff was really designed to help you and I understand what a life of worship was to be like. And he's going to spell that out here in these two verses in Romans 12. Well, let's return once more to our study here in the book of Romans chapter 12. And the title and focus of our study is a commitment to spiritual living. Now that makes sense, I believe, after 11 chapters of studying the doctrine of salvation. What it is. It makes sense, you know, in regards to what that doctrine is. What salvation is. How you get it and so forth. 
And, and now Paul says, okay, a justified person lives this way. He's explained justification by faith. He's taken 11 chapters to do it. He's helped you and I understand and see. He's plumbed the depths of such amazing topics like election, right? And helped us understand how that relates, how God's sovereignty relates to salvation. And now he's going to say, okay, you got all that in your mind? Now here's how you live that out. Well, let's look at uh, Romans 12, and let me just read these two verses. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray here. Lord, we want to understand your word, and we pray, Lord, that this very, very important and very familiar passage, that it would not be uh, so familiar to us, Lord, that we would uh, j just graze and think to ourselves, I know this. This is old hat. What can I learn from this? I pray, Father, that we would learn, and that we would receive, and that we would take it into our hearts, and that you would help us to understand and know how, Lord, we might live a life of worship. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So many Christians that are frustrated with their spiritual lives. They're not satisfied with what they see. And maybe you might think that's how normal Christianity should be lived. After all, we did study that in Romans 7. But even though there is that struggle. And maybe you're like me and it still doesn't satisfy you to know that Paul struggled that way. You want victory over sin. You want to be able to, to look that temptation in the eye and say, be gone. I don't have anything to do with you anymore. I don't live that way anymore. You want to be able to live your life that way. And maybe there are some that are, are frustrated because you don't, you don't like the progress that you see. And all you see maybe are lots of defeats. Lots of giving in to temptations. There, might, there are some that, that live that way and what they're really wanting is victory over sin. Practically. They want to fix themselves. And they may even be saying to themselves, I know I have all these great resources, but so many times I feel like I can't stop my mouth from saying the things that, that, it, that it's saying. I can't stop my hands from doing the thing that I know that my hands shouldn't do. Or my feet from going to the places I know that I shouldn't go to. Or my ears from hearing the gossip I know that I shouldn't hear. Or my eyes from seeing the things that I know that I shouldn't be seeing. And we want victory. You know, we tend to look for quick fixes, don't we? We tend to look for, for formulas. We tend to look for, for grids, for equations. Some kind of movement or trend that will pull us out of it. I know what that's like. Kind of like, you know, the, well, you know, did that, did that worked for that guy. Maybe that'll work for me, right? Ooh, you know, that, that, I saw some great significant change in that person. What would you do? What's the secret? See? And you kind of, you want that. 
If only we could bottle it, right? And you know, uh, we also have names for our failures. We say, you know, we're in a dry spell. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're just not feeling it right now. We're in, we're in a spiritual funk, right? I mean, you know, it's a downtime maybe for me. I mean, and so forth. And what we're looking for really is to get something that will change everything, aren't we? But listen, beloved. That's not the answer that Paul gives here in Romans 12 at all. It's not getting something. And so often we, link, we, we think of Christianity that way. We think of even coming to church that way. What can I get? I just didn't get enough. I just didn't get it. It just didn't hit me. You know, uh, I feel like I need to get more. And maybe if I get more, then I'll be okay. And do you want to know something? It's not in the getting. You know what Paul's answer to you is? It's in the giving. You're going to learn that this morning as we look at this text. Now, understand something here. I, I've endeavored to, to do two verses this morning, but I can promise you we're going to do one. And I don't even know if we'll get all the way through the one verse. So we'll see how that works. That was, you always have these grandiose thoughts, especially during the week as you're studying. Things are going to be great. You're going to, it's all packaged. You know, you got these points and everything. So just, you breathe easy as we're going through this here. I promise we'll try to keep this to the time limit. Uh, so as we're getting close and you think, we haven't gone through all the points. Why, it could be that we're going to finish it up next week. So, okay. All right. Well, it's not in the getting. It's in the giving. It's not about what you can get from God. Beloved, he's given you everything in Christ. What more can you get? When he says in 2 Peter 1, 3, we have everything that pertains to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. He's given you everything. What, are you, what more are you going to get? Oh, if I could only have more love. How much more love can there be than the love that has been, Romans 5, 5, poured into your heart through Christ Jesus? Did he forget a drop? Right? Is this just an installment thing? I mean, we have everything resource-wise. It's not about what you can get from God. It's about what you can give to God. In fact, let me say it this way. Experiencing the greatest getting comes from committing yourselves to a sacrificial giving. Say that again. Experiencing the greatest getting comes from committing ourselves to a sacrificial giving. And listen, beloved. It's giving all you have and all that you are. Everything. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples and, and the crowds this? Matthew 16, 24. If any man wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How many times did he say that? I think if we really were to focus on statements that Jesus has said like that, we would be shocked at the rigidity. We would be shocked at the narrowness. We would be just flabbergasted at just how you know, uh, unbending he was. Remember that in Luke 9? When those people came to him and they said, Oh, I will follow you wherever you go. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, 
you know what you're looking for and your heart's not in the right place, no thank you. I don't need you. If you think that I need more people, learn the lesson from Gideon who thought that the Lord needed a massive army and he pared it down to only about 300 guys and won the battle with them. See, Learn that lesson. That it's not about the fact of, it's not about what the Lord needs. How, if, if only he could get a, a great big army, then he could be successful. He only needs himself. You and I are invited to the party. We should be thankful for that. Very narrow. Very, I mean, the cost is, you know, sometimes I think we, we maybe uh, confuse things. And we think to ourselves, well, salvation's a free gift. Absolutely. The grace is free. It cost Christ his life, giving everything. Listen. And for you to follow him, it will also cost your whole life. Yeah, his life is efficacious. And by that I mean it has power to save you. Your life doesn't have power to save anything. But your life is what's called for. That's what it is even to be a Christian. We start that way and that's how we live our life. That's spiritual living. It's total, total commitment. There's nothing partial about it. There's no halfway. Did the rich young ruler go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me? In his kingdom parables, he said, sell all you have and buy what Jesus says is valuable. In Luke 13, strive to enter through the narrow door. Luke 14, give up all your possessions to be my disciple. That is how he defined it. When Christ came, he made it narrow. He made it really small. Matthew 7, remember, the gate is narrow. Wide is the world's way. Very skinny and narrow is, is my way. Jesus' call was basically this. You must give you up to gain me. That's what John the Baptist said. I must decrease. He must increase. And so the key to spiritual living, then, beloved, is giving all you have and all you are. It's not getting some grid or some sort of feeling that will carry you on. It's not the key. And I tell you what, I mean, this is going to, I think, be a, such a deliverance for so many of us. That for whatever reason, have it in our mind, this is not a worthy service unless there's some return out of this. Unless there's something that I can get out of this some praise, some recognition, something. I'm, I know I'm there too. And so the idea then is a complete, total giving of yourself to the Lord, to serve Him, to live for Him. That was Jesus' call over and over and over. And so what you have here is this. After he spells out the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ, Paul says, now you have to live the spiritual life. You've been saved, right, out of the world of the flesh. Now you need to live the life in the world of the Spirit. 
And you can see that very thing all throughout the scriptures. It's, it's everywhere. I was thinking of Colossians 1 where he's been, he says you've been saved out of the domain of darkness and placed, transferred into the kingdom of light. And what that means is we've been put into a sphere of spiritual living. That's what the, la- the Lord saved you for. And it's a life of worship. Total commitment. Total commitment. Now listen, beloved. That kind of living where you have no possessions and you place no importance on this world, this life, where you place no importance on your house, no importance on what you own, that's essentially the life of a priest in the Old Testament. You realize that? And what Paul does now, and this is really amazing, we shouldn't be surprised because there's a very much a Jewish uh, flavor to this whole epistle. What he does is he, ba- he says basically, the Lord has saved you to live a priestly life. A life where you have nothing and depend on the Lord for everything and you just serve him out of that. You remember when the Levites came into the promised land and you had all these tribes and they all had their allotment. And what did the Levites get? Nothing. They depended upon the people to give them all that they needed. Food, place to live, all that. Cities of refuge and all that. All these places were designed to kind of help these Levites. These poor little Levites didn't have anything. And yet, their job simply was to serve everyone by serving in the Lord's temple, serving the Lord. And so they had the job of serving the Lord and serving the people, and the people benefited from their service, right? You understand that? That's that's us. It's a great picture of us. It's a life where you have nothing and depend on the Lord for everything, and you just serve Him out of that. In other words, Romans 1 through 11 are all about what God did for you in saving you. 12 through 16 are all about what you must do as a result. And again, I want to be clear. Not that you're doing something to gain any uh, favor from the Lord. Not that you could ever do anything to gain any grace or uh, gain anything in salvation. He gave... So you could give. And your giving doesn't earn anything. It's a giving of gratitude. It's a giving that demonstrates worship. It's a giving that demonstrates, yes, you do know the Lord, and you worship Him, just like all those angels in heaven do. Now let me point out to you our text, and then bring in two other Bible texts to help you get this. So that I can introduce this this thought here. Here's the basic thought in our study. Look at verse 1 here. It says, present your bodies, and then it says, a sacrifice. That is the heart of the thought. Those other words that are around it are kind of the qualifiers there. But the main basic statement is, present your bodies a sacrifice. See those three words, present bodies and sacrifice? Fascinating words in the Greek. All of them, all three of them, are related to to kind of the cultic Old Testament priestly background of giving, making offerings and sacrifices. It's a it's temple service where the priests offer the animal, and and in this case there's no animal, right? Who's the offering? Well, we are, aren't we? 
we are. Now watch this. In the Old Testament, you remember, the, the priests brought the animals, or excuse me, the people brought the animals to the priests. You brought the animals to the priest, and you, what happened? And the, the priest took the animal, and it slit the throat and killed it, and the blood was all poured out. And The whole idea of that was, uh, was uh, to be symbolic of the faith that the person who brought it had, that the Lord would take care of your sin. Understand this, too. They were never, those animals never intended to be a substitute for the sinner. Do you understand that? The animals could, that's the whole point of Hebrews. Those animals could never be a substitute for you. Here's my animal. Great, I'm good for another week, right? No, that's, the animal couldn't, couldn't do that. Even if you brought the best animal, the most spotless of all animals. They were a symbol of something to come, a shadow, a picture. And that system, by Paul here saying in Romans 12:1, present your bodies a sacrifice, it is reemphasizing the statement and the point that that system in the Old Testament finished. You don't need animals anymore because there's one who came and shed blood and did it, and it was, as Hebrews 9 says, a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus died as the Lamb of God to take away our sin. He was a sufficient sacrifice. He was, he was the substitute Savior. That's why Paul calls us, listen, a living sacrifice. See? We don't need any of those dead things anymore. And Jesus isn't dead himself. He's alive. And so therefore we are living sacrifice. Now listen to how 2 Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter 2.5 puts it. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, listen to this, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, there's no more animals. It's just you. It's just you. Because of what Jesus did, we can do priestly work in a spiritual way. And this is offering talk. But instead of dead offerings, what kind does God want? He wants living ones. He wants living ones and those living ones to be you and me. Offer up spiritual sacrifices. Offer yourself up. Psalm 116 is... Uh, very helpful. Verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I mean, what am I going to render to the Lord? What can, I, what, what can I do for the Lord? What can I do because he's been so beneficial towards me. So many benefits that I get from the Lord. So what can I do? All about, I mean, you, you look at Romans 1 through 11 and it's all about the benefits that we have in Christ. All about what God did so he can save us. And so Psalm 116 is similar that way. What Shall I render to the Lord for all those benefits that, that Romans 1 through 11 gave me? What's it say? What can I give? Verse 13. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to lift up that cup that's been filled with His salvation and I'm going to call out to Him. 
Verse 14, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Verse 16, I am your servant, I have service to do. Verse 17, I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 18, I shall pay my vows to the Lord and so forth. And the main point then is this, that he's saying is this, I'll live my life for you. I will live my life for you. I will serve you. That's all I can do out of gratitude. That's what he's saying. I am going to commit myself to you all the time, every day, Lord. That's what he's saying. How about Psalm 51, 17? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What kind of sacrifice is God looking for? Animals? No. He's looking for a broken spirit. In fact, you could say this regarding the Old Testament. What was it that the Lord looked for in the Old Testament out of those who were his? Did he look for bulls and goats? I mean, how many of those are you bringing? Did you, did you do it? Did you do it right? No, you know what he was looking for? According to Psalm 51, 17? Devotion. He was looking for the heart. He was looking for repentance. He was looking for contriteness. He was looking for lowliness. He was looking for a broken heart. Before God felt unworthy. You know what he was looking for? A total commitment to him. So the point is, is that God calls us to offer ourselves. Offer ourselves like priests offering a sacrifice. Except we are the sacrifice. Following here, great doctrine about salvation. Here's what it is. Here's how it works. Okay, you're going to live your life now? Now that you believe, now that you're there? What, what, what do I do, Paul? Here's what, what you do. You take yourself like a priest with that animal and you offer that self to the Lord, except it won't be killed on the altar. It's going to be alive. And by that, he is basically saying, he's basically calling us to have a total commitment then to spiritual living. A total commitment to a life of worship. That's what I'm calling spiritual living. That's spiritual living, really. A life of worship. A total commitment to spiritual living. This is kind of the... Um, it's amazing how many different passages you can really string together. And I'm trying hard not to do so much of that, but they're, they're just there. Uh, this really is the Ephesians 5, you'll be filled with the Spirit. This is it, spiritual living. This is the Galatians 5 and 6. And 5, he says, you know, uh, walk by the Spirit. And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? And then in 6, he says, any of you who are spiritual, restore a person who's in sin. And by saying that, he's, what he's saying is, you need to be living spiritually so that you can be doing these services. This is the spiritual living. This is basically, this is the answer to Galatians 6.1. Any, any of you who are spiritual, so how do you get, how, who are those people? Well, they're Romans 12, 1 and 2 people. See? And so he calls us to have a total commitment to spiritual living. He, Romans 1 through 11 is, the, is telling us basically that he set us free for that, to, to do that. So how do you do that? Four crucial ways. And I'm going to give you one 
And I'm not sure I'm going to give you two. We'll see. All right, first, by offering God a redeemed soul. Let's look at this here, verse 1a. How do you do this? How do you live this commitment? How do I live a life where I'm committed to the Lord, where I am just faithful to Him, where I'm living a spiritual life by offering God a redeemed soul? What's he say there in verse 1? I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now this is the entrance to spiritual living. This is basic, beloved. You can't offer God anything unless you've been made right, right? I mean, what are you going to offer Him? What could you bring to Him? I mean, the Lord has already told us all throughout the Old Testament, I own it all. What are you going to bring to me that, that's going to be new? It's going to be impressive. It's going to be helpful. I made this. Okay, I made everything, you know. Uh, I did this. I did everything. What are we going to bring that's really valuable? You have nothing, beloved. You can't offer God anything unless you've been made right. You have nothing outside of your salvation. And that's the point of Psalm 116 when he lifts up the cup. And it's a cup of what? Salvation. And he does it because without it, his cup is filled with nothing but what? Sin. You realize without Christ, he would be lifting up the cup of sin. See, and that's not going to do. That's not going to work. And so you start here, the starting place. You're going to, if you, you can't really do anything for the Lord unless you start here by offering God a redeemed soul. Now, there are a lot of unbelievers trying to offer God all kinds of things. They really don't do anything. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me what? Nothing. See? And you, know, you, you, you have lots of people that are very social, into the social gospel. You have lots of people that are into, you know, help the poor and that, and that's, and that's good. I mean, it's good to help the poor. In fact, I'll go further. It's the Lord's heart in terms of, you know, feeding uh, the poor and... Uh, visiting the widows and caring for the orphans. I mean, that is clearly the Lord's heart. But listen carefully. The doing of those things is not a service to God. Catch that? The doing of those things and being unredeemed in your soul does nothing. None of those acts are helpful. None of the things that we do, and he, in fact, he even says here, you can, and he's not talking about being uh, weird when he says, if I surrender, surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing, or give all my possessions to feed the poor. I mean, he, it's what he told Zacchaeus to do, was, you know, give all your possessions. It's what he told the rich young ruler to do, was give all his possessions to feed the, to feed the poor. Obviously, those are good things, but his point is this. If you think that you can make these great sacrifices, you can do these things that are so amazing out there, but you've yet to come to the place of Romans 1 through 11 where you have said, 
Romans 3, yes, I am that person who understands that I don't fear God and I do no good and there's no righteousness in me and I'm all sinned and all I see is sin there. And Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death and I am that sinner who deserves wrath, who deserves uh, you know, punishment for my sin, if you haven't come to that place, then all those things that you give to feed the poor, to do, to do all of that, is for one thing and one reason only, and it is your own glory, right? That's not going to get you anything. That's not going to help you. God will not pat you on the back. God will not say, my, that was, thank you for doing that. In fact, God is the one who says, look, the poor you have with you always. If Jesus' intention were to feed the poor so that socialism, we could get rid of people that are, get rid of the, the, the class system of where people don't have and take those poor people and make them middle class people and take those, you know, kind of upper class people and make them middle class so that we all have goods and that we're all cared for that way. Don't you think Christ could have done that? He was more than capable. His hands weren't tied. There were people he healed and there were some that he did not. Many he did not. His goal was to get a people that could be redeemed so that they could turn around and love others that way and get people to wonder why would you take such interest in me? I know you're a sinner like me. Oh, because God has set me free from my sins and redeemed me and made me, he's changed my love. I don't have a love for the world anymore. My love is for God and his glory and for all now. And there's nothing in it for me whatsoever. You can give of yourself, but if you don't come with a redeemed soul, none of what you give will matter. You know, there are lots of people doing all sorts of services in the name of God that are not offering to God anything. Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Gains the whole world. You realize he's not just talking about money there. If you gain anything from the world forfeit your soul it's not really gain is it look at all these plaques you think you're going to be able to bring before the Lord all the plaques that you have so look, Nobel Peace Prize isn't that is that worth anything you know here was a I got this award for being the most generous person and this other award over here was the nice guy of the year you know does that help no it doesn't does it what will it profit a man what are you going to give God if your soul hasn't been, you know, given to him first, right? The soul has to be given to him first. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul told us that an unbeliever cannot please God no matter what they do with all their activities. Romans 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Period. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What's that mean? Well, it means if you are an unbeliever 
and your life is characterized by the flesh, if you are an unbeliever, that's basically describing an unbeliever. An unbeliever is someone whose life is characterized by flesh. If that's you, there is nothing you can do that's going to earn pleasure from God. It's not pleased with you. Not pleased at all. And I've used this illustration a thousand times, but I think it bears saying again. I mean, you know, you see the old lady, the lady on the side of the road who's, who's got the tire and it's, and it's flat and you want to, you see that lady, you want to help that lady, you go to change that tire and it's a nice deed, isn't it? I mean, she's helpless. She's, maybe it's a downpour of rain. But if your soul is not redeemed, that act there did not please, it didn't bring God pleasure. See, are you kidding me? Helping a lady who has a need? Surely that pleases God. Not if you did it for your own glory. That didn't please God. You know how it is. You walk away, and you say to yourself, Huh, that lady didn't even seem that grateful. Oh, whose glory was that for, really? Right? Can't please God. No amount of service and good stuff they do will make God happy. None. It doesn't profit one bit of good. What kind of people can please God? The ones who have received, what's it say in this verse really? His mercies. The ones who have received his mercies. It's the mercies of God that makes the soul redeemed. You've got to start there. Otherwise, we're talking about doing things without power without soul change. And it's always, as I mentioned, going to be selfish and self-seeking in its glory. Look at uh, Romans 12.1. I urge you, therefore, see if we can work through this here. Urge. Urge is the Greek word parakalo, or parakaleo here, parakalo. It has a range of meaning, a very fascinating word. It, it can mean exhort, uh, you know, to kind of come along under the authority of, of God. It can mean encourage. It can mean comfort or or cons console somebody. Literally, it means to call alongside of yourself. To call alongside. You, you get to, you, it's a real picture uh, of, a, of a person who's discipling another person. A person whose arm is around another person. It's the work that uh, parents do all the time with their children. They're constantly, come here, come here, sit right here, right over here. Why? why? I, I just want to talk with you. Well, what do you want to talk about, Dad? Well, I, I just have seen some things in your life that I'd like to, to point out. Right? Or, I, I, just wanna, I saw you were down, and I just wanted to encourage you. Or, you know, I, I just uh, want to know more about your life. Okay, see? Calling alongside, right there. Come next to me so I can take a good look at you, and so we can talk about this. That's the idea of this word. It, th there's a... It's calling, it, it's, it's like, it's calling a person alongside of the truth to do something. There's a gentleness or a comfort or an affection with this kind of word. There's a lot of passion in that word. It has the sense of beseech or beg. Really trying to connect with the affection of that person in doing this. So it's not drill sergeant. It's not arms folded and going, you must do this, I'm telling you do this, or else. You know what I mean? You better do this, right? You know, those, it's not threatening. It really is 
coming alongside to try to reach into that soul and get that person motivated in the right ways. No strings attached, no manipulation, nothing like that at all. Great passion in doing that. Very, very emphatic, passionate word. Notice next the word therefore. I urge you therefore. Now that's connected to the entire letter. That's not just talking about chapter 11. All commentators are agreed. This goes all the way back to cover, to encompass the whole 11 chapters. Therefore. Okay, on the basis of everything that's been taught here. Give of yourself. Because of chapters 1 through 11, a lot of the truth taught in those first 11 chapters, you've got to live this way. Paul lays out his letters like this all the time, by the way. You've seen this, right? I mean, I'm, literally, every single letter seems to be kind of broken down this way. You can look at Ephesians, and you have the first three chapters that are all doctrine and all, you know, the position that we have in the Lord. And then you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, okay, I want you to walk this way, okay? Um, that's the practice of, of the believer. You can see it in Philippians. Chapter 1 is really focused heavily on where we're at, identifying with Christ. In chapter 2, he says, make my joy complete, and I want you guys to start doing stuff, right? I'm telling you. Galatians, a very similar thing. You have four chapters worth of amazing doctrine, and then you get to chapter 5, and he says, okay, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Now, live this way, see? And he's always setting up the practice with the doctrine. Oh, beloved, let's learn from this. I've, been to, I've heard so many. Thankfully, not, not, not much here, but I mean, I've heard from so many. You can read so many books of people that downplay doctrine, that downplay learning truth, that downplay theology. Paul never did that. His whole point was, look, you're not going to know how to live your life if I don't tell you what you need to believe. I don't help change your belief system. If you're not convinced and convicted about these things, you're not going to bother to change or do anything with your life. It's not going to do me any good to sit, or, sit there and tell you, okay, now do this and do this and do this. You know what's going to help? If I tell you this, look, God is holy, He's sovereign, He sees every little thing that you do, and He's holding you accountable for it. Now, Go clean your room. See? It's pretty powerful, right? That's a good... That's, you know, that's... Theology is really important. It's critical, right? All right. And it works with a lot of things, doesn't it? Yeah. You realize God made that food, right? So there's the kids looking at the food kind of with... Oh, boy. I don't know. I don't know about that, right? So you should eat it. I put it on your plate. Eat the food, right? It's always connecting that theology to something real... Real practical. So in light of the truth of, of chapters 1 through 11, live this way. Totally commit yourself to spiritual living. You say, what truth? Well, he tells us, look at verse 1, by the mercies of God. Now, what are the mercies of God? Great stuff. If you do, just meditate on that phrase and that thought. Mercies of God. You know what mercy is, right? It's when you're getting something you, you don't deserve. You're in a pitiful place, pitiful condition. Your spiritual condition is bad. God shows mercy by not giving you the thing that you deserve. It's the many truths that he's already told us in chapters 1 through 11. For example, 
Remember what was poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit? Chapter 5, verse 5. The love of God. And you see that love is amazing. And you see it in amazing ways in chapter 8. Remember that? I mean, chapter 8 was all about his love. Where it talks about, you know, uh, there, the, the last couple of verses there in chapter uh, 8. Right, where it says, you know, it talks about, uh, for I am convinced. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? His love is all throughout Romans. And so that's a mercy, isn't it? How about the Holy Spirit himself? He, he gave us the Holy Spirit himself. He's been given to us. And we saw that in chapter 8. And, and you know, he's a, he, it's amazing because he's the guarantee, really, of our salvation. And God gave us forgiveness of sins. Is that a mercy? Sure. How about hope? Remember that? Romans 5. How about faith? Romans 3. Faith it itself has been given to us to believe. How about grace? Is that a mercy? Sure. How about peace? Romans 5.1. How about righteousness? Is that a mercy? Sure. I mean... Our, when our own righteousness it will, will condemn us and his righteousness will make us approved, that is a great mercy because we don't deserve it. Chapter 5 talks about reconciliation. Is that a mercy? Sure. Chapter 6 talks about union. Chapter 8 about security. Chapters 4 and 5, justification. Chapter 6, freedom from our sins. Chapter 8, intercession with God. It's loaded with mercy after mercy after mercy. The mercies of God. He says, I urge you therefore, by those mercies. That's why we can say that the very first thing we can offer is redeemed soul. Eternal life, sonship, it's all there. All those are mercies of God. And of course, we don't deserve any of them. Now in light of getting all those mercies of God, how should we respond to that? You got all these mercies. All this grace. All this kindness. There's another one we forgot. How do we live? How should we respond to that? See, this is the point. You've been given so much. Give yourself to the Lord who gave so much for your salvation. I think sometimes we hear this. Sometimes we hear this. I had such a debt that was paid. He gave so much. I can never repay. You don't even try. So why try? Right? I think sometimes that's in our mind. And I don't think that's the right way. It's not Romans 12.1. What he's basically saying is, God gave so much. You give so much. Again, this is not a meet me halfway, 50-50 deal. This is a God gave it all. Live out of that love, gratitude, and affection for all that he has done for you. So the picture here then is a person who has the mercies of God and has a redeemed soul, and what he does then is offer that soul back to God as a service to do whatever he wants. This is the reason why, count it up. There were 12, but the 12th one was the son of perdition. But look at those 11 disciples. Remember they kept saying to Jesus, we gave everything to follow you. And I love the tenderness of our Lord. 
You know, it's not like he said, oh, yeah, well, you're going to fall away. He never he didn't say that at that point. He said, oh, I know, I know you have. See, I like that. So gracious. I know you have. You have. And I'm thankful. It's the sense you get when those disciples are interacting with Jesus. Remember, we talk, that's Matthew 19. When they, he's talking about the rich young ruler, and he can't be saved. And they say, well, how, who then can be saved? And, and, oh, we have given everything to follow you, Lord. He says, I know. so it's giving the soul back to God as a service to do whatever he wants your soul belongs to him and you live like it that way have you noticed how many times in the Bible it talks about us being slaves of Christ if you could do this search here in the Greek you know the word is doulos it's the word for slave and look how many times that word is used to describe what a Christian is. He is a slave. We've been tainted so badly by uh, the, the you know, last 100, 150 years in our nation. We think of slavery, or even beyond that. You think of slavery. We think negatively. But we were set free to be slaves. Slaves of Christ. Romans 6.22, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. See, that's what happened at salvation. I don't have a life anymore. I don't want a life of my own anymore. You know what? After the Lord convinced me that I did it, I messed up my life and did a pretty bad job of it, of, of leading it. Yeah, I like him being the leader. I want him to be my leader. Are you tired of being your own leader? That's salvation is to come finally to recognize your sinfulness, that you're trying to lead your life, and it's going nowhere but hell, and condemnation, and punishment. And he can set you free from that. It's Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I'm his slave. I'm his. I'm all his. See? Don't miss also the therefore helps us understand the close relationship of doctrine and duty. You have to have the one before you have the other, and we mentioned that already. And the point of all this is redeemed people are able to give themselves in true service to God, true sacrifice. I can remember a woman once saying, what can I do? As she saw all the many needs in the church. And this woman happened to not be a believer. But she was, you could see, you know, it was possible that maybe the Lord was drawing her to himself. And you know, she's wondering, what can I do in the church? My response to her was, you can't do anything. It, it wouldn't do any, anyone any good. What do you mean? This is what I mean, lady. God doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your soul. He wants your soul. And when you can bring him your soul, then you can bring him the sacrifice, the right sacrifice, right? Isn't that what Samuel was telling Saul in 1 Samuel 15? To obey is better than what? Sacrifice. Come to the Lord. So that's the first offering. Let's look at the second one here. And we'll only have time to look at this uh, second one. What's this commitment look like? What's spiritual living look like? How can we live a spiritual life? By offering, secondly, God a devoted, or you could say dedicated body. 
The first one focuses on the soul. This one focuses on the body. Verse 1. Look at what it says there, verse 1. He says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, once you've given your soul to the Lord, the next thing is simply a natural sense, right? You give him your what? Your body, right? What's God wanting? He's wanting your body. All of it. All of it. We're not like the Gnostics. We're not like the Gnostics who would say, oh, well, no, the body is so, I mean, all matter is, is sinful and it's all corrupt. So why would you offer that to God? Because that's yuck anyway. All that really counts is your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. The body doesn't really matter. See? That's not what the Bible says. So when we talk about offering all of you, that includes your body, beloved. Your physical body. See? Now look at what Paul says next. You present your bodies. Present is a, a temple word. Remember Joseph with Mary? They went to the temple to present their, their offerings, right? And Jesus told the man, made well, go to the priests and present yourself to them, right? I have to tell you, beloved, this is a tough one. This is tough. I mean, getting your body to do what the Lord wants is not easy nor natural because of sin. You remember what we learned in Romans 7. The body is unredeemed. It's unredeemed flesh. It's... And that's, the, that's why in chapter 6 Paul says, sin doesn't reign over your heart anymore, but it can reign where? In your mortal body. This is tough. So you have, to, you have to not let it reign. You have to not obey its lusts. You have to present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. See? Now, he says this, is I want to help you see this a, a bit. So, turn to 1 Corinthians 6. I want you to see this. This is, this is a very helpful passage about, about the body. Now, again, the body is it's unredeemed. And it doesn't want to go the direction the new man is going. Your soul, right? So, you have this body. And sometimes you kind of feel that way. You almost feel like there's a tug of war going on. So, well, should I do this? I know I shouldn't do this. And over here, the, my inner man, my heart, heart really wants to do the thing the Lord wants me to do. In 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. But I will not be, what's it say, mastered by anything. That's the key. Mastery. In other words, though I can do whatever I want with my body, there is one thing I must not do. What? Allow my body to be mastered by anything. By sin. Right? Then verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Okay, it belongs to Jesus now, right? Used to belong to the prince of the power of the air. Not anymore. So what do I do with this body? Verse 18, flee immorality. Make it pure. Make it be pure. Why? Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the what? Holy Spirit who what? Is in you. And that you're not your own. And then, then here's the rub. Verse 20. You have been bought with a price. That's Romans 1 through 11. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's Romans 12. 1. See? All of Romans right there in that one verse. 
Now, I actually think verse 13 is, the, is really the key. 1 Corinthians 6.13 The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. There it is. Your body is not for you. Not anymore. It's for the Lord. And this is why he could easily say in 1 Corinthians 7 to married people, Husband, that's not your body. That body belongs to your wife. Wife, that's not your body. That body belongs to your husband. Right? He could say that because he's already made the point. Look, the body is for the Lord. The Lord is for the body. Use that body to glorify him. And then you can read all about it in Romans 7. There's a great struggle getting this body to obey the Lord. Seems like such a raging and a losing battle sometimes. And so Paul is saying, my problem is that I struggle getting this hunk of flesh to glorify God. Like 1 Corinthians 6, he says. In verse 21 of Romans 7, he says, there's a principle of sin that evil is present in me. A, a sort of bondage is there. He's saying, now wait, I thought you were redeemed. Yes, the inner man joyfully agrees with the law of God, but say, what's the problem? Well, the problem is the body, the flesh, isn't redeemed yet. And so verse 25, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, I'm serving the law of what? Sin. And so here's this great battle, this struggle that's going on. Spiritual living doesn't just flow, beloved. It isn't natural at all with your body. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Yeah, we all notice it in the morning when the alarm clock goes off, right? Or, you know, when it's uh, 7 o'clock and you think it's bedtime, and you, it really needs, you know, you, you got two more hours of, of stuff to do. You'd like to go, you know, put the head on the pillow. Can't do it. More stuff to do, right? Got to make that body do what it needs to do. The inner man, yes, but your flesh, your body... No, the inner man, it's natural to, obviously, spiritual living is natural there, but not with your body. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4. This is the will of God. Abstain from sexual immorality. So what do you mean here? This is really, really helpful, I think. Because he ties sexual immorality with the body. He says, verse 5, he mentions lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he's talking about lustful passion. In verse 4, he says this, that you possess your own vessel in honor. And that means, when that word vessel, it means your own body. In other words, you need to treat, use your body in an honoring way, in a God-honoring way. In other words, verse 7, God hasn't called us for the purpose of using our bodies in impurity but holiness. Now Paul wouldn't be telling us that unless he knew it was very difficult to control the body, right? Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you find that your eyes just won't stop getting you into trouble and they wander and they look where they shouldn't, simple solution, pluck them out. He says, really? You only have two. Doesn't give you many you know, chances. Well, he didn't mean physical. Okay? He's meaning get control. Don't let your eyes be mastered by anything but as instruments of righteousness. Paul also uh, gives insight of 1 Corinthians 9.27. You remember this? But I discipline my body. And it's, it's really interesting. It's a boxing 
It's a boxing uh, analogy. <laughs> and actually, if you want to really get the analogy that he's saying, he's boxing himself. See? Punching himself in the face. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've, that's strange if you see a person doing that, right? But what he's talking about, obviously, is from a spiritual standpoint, he's saying, look, I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Slave. Be the slave. Be harsh with it in a godly way. We're not talking about like the old Catholic priests who you know, used to try to hurt themselves to, to gain favor with God, which is strange. He says, in other words, I, I beat it down. I, I make self-control the issue with my body. Why? Because Paul's presenting his body as a sacrifice to the Lord, and so he strangles its desires, and he takes those desires like a wild horse, and he bridles them to present that body with new man's desires. See? Follow and know Christ. Beloved, take a look around. People have such strange views about the body. Some people, like the Greeks, think very lowly of the body. And they'll do anything to, to, to the body. And it amazes me. And they let it do whatever. Other people have a, 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 a view of the body that they, they worship it, really. And they try to bring glory to themselves by making it an object to be looked at. But as believers, we discipline an unredeemed body. Why? Because... It demonstrates the power of God in salvation that we can actually present this wild thing as something useful, see, an instrument of righteousness, of good, of God's will. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, all sanctification, all growing in Christ involves the body. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so spiritual living is a commitment to offer yourself. Offering yourself involves offering the body. And when you have this kind of view of your body, you really are able to handle so much, beloved. So much. I mean, you have this treasure in you, in this body, in earthen vessels, to manifest the power of God as not coming from ourselves. And so like 2 Corinthians 4.10 says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Listen to this, verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words... Presenting the body as a sacrifice to the Lord may involve danger. It will mean that it doesn't do what the world wants, but it goes places where the Lord wants, and it has mission, and it has purpose, and that purpose is manifesting Christ and His life. It's Paul in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul counts all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ, his Savior, knowing his righteousness, right? And 
So Christian living, spiritual living, is a surrendered living, a yielding. You make that body serve Jesus as your new Lord. Let me end this here with two last thoughts here. I want you to listen to this great lyric I, I read from a sermon preached by John MacArthur. He quoted this from an anonymous person. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while he counted losses. I counted by worth, my worth by the things gained in store. He sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as he counted the hours I spent on my knees. I never knew until one day by the grave how vain are the things we spend our life to save. End quote. He's called us to total commitment. And that total commitment involves the giving of yourself. First, you give your soul. Second, that redeemed soul to the Lord. That's the only way only way you can do things that are going to be pleasing to the Lord. Secondly, you give your body to serve Him. Dedicated, devoted to Him. I'm going to talk more about that next week. Listen to this. This comes from the memoirs of Robert Murray McShane. While very sick and soon to die, Robert Murray McShane jotted this down. This, consider this in light of uh, how he used his body. As literally at this point in time, he was dying. He was physically feeling the effects of the illness that he had that was soon to take his life, and he knew it. Listen to this. As I was walking in the fields, the thought came over me with almost overwhelming power that every one of my flock must soon be in heaven or hell. Oh, how I wish that I had a tongue like thunder that I might make all hear, or that I had a frame like iron, that I might visit everyone and say, Escape for thy life, ah, oh, sinners. You little know how I fear that you will lay the blame of your damnation at my door. End quote. He felt the significant purpose and weight of using all that he had, every ounce, you know, you and I would be checking ourselves into every type of hospital that we could to try and get ourselves better. Oh, you know what? I, I, I've got to find a way to get this, this thing here to live a little longer. And here he is, his great concern are souls. Souls. The same, that same man said this also, quote, I am myself much tempted and have no hope but as a worm on the arm of Jesus. Often, often would I have been glad to depart and be with Christ. I am now much better in body and mind, having a little of the presence of my beloved, whose absence is death to me. In other words, Lord, I just have this body and it's wasting away. I'd like to be with you anyway. Oh, what hope we put into our bodies rather than sacrificing them. Give, give them up. Give them up. 
Use them for the glory of God. Those are the words of a man who understood the truth of Romans 12.1 to present his body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He used to say this. The oil of the lamp in the temple burnt away in giving light. So should we. Yeah, constant, all day, all the time. That's the idea of this verse. Be that sacrifice. Give yourself all day, all the time. Give of your body. Give of your soul to serve our God who's so worthy. Well, that's, that's just the start here. We've got so much more. And uh, it's a, it's the, the finish, the end of this, the end of verse 2, is, is so exciting here what, what, what we have here. And I trust that the Lord is going to use this to make greater servants in the body of Christ in your marriage, in your families, and in the family of families right here. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and praise you. Thank you, Father, for giving us this hope in Jesus Christ. And Father, we cherish our bodies so much and you so little. And we are, Father, uh, we, we should be ashamed of ourselves that way. And we pray, dear Lord, thanking you for Christ. And thanking you, Lord, that the mercies of God are not con contingent or dependent upon us being obedient to you. Your mercies are new every morning. They're, they're tied to your faithfulness, Lord. They're tied to, uh, to, to, to Christ and his sacrifice. And if we have his sacrifice as our sacrifice, Lord, then we have your mercies all the time, every day. We thank you for that. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to be this type of sacrifice to give of ourselves, Lord. To be completely committed to this type of spiritual living. And we can't do this on our own strength, and so we need you, Lord. And we ask for this. Transform this church to be more like Christ this way, we pray in Jesus' name.